Welcome to Pulp, the little show that could. Not that it does, but it could. I promise you folks, this episode will be the best so far all year or your money back. First, we have our inaugural entry from Of Prophets and Warlords. It's our high fantasy show. No orcs, elves, or halflings or anything else ripped off from Tolkien. This is its very own thing. So sit back and enjoy the show. Let the Wonderman unfold. The Blessed Prophet At the turn of the seasons, when the leaves change into the warm colors, a cadre of young acolytes would make their pilgrimage to the Temple of Gifts in preparation for the Festival of Gifts. They would take a vow of silence, not including their participation in song, until their gift was bestowed upon them by the divine presence at the festival. Then it was their duty to go out into the world and do the work of the prophets. Some would wait in the temple years until they received their gifts. Some would retain their vow of silence even after they had received their gift. Others would receive their gifts the first year of their devotion and go out into the world speaking as they pleased. Notable prophets who had received their gifts and made a name for themselves would bring an offering, often in competition with each other, to bring the most valuable or rare peace. They would take part in a lavish processional across the wide bridge that spanned the chasm from the mountains to the temple that rose out of the mist of the canyon and up the path and wound its way around the temple to the platform at the top. The acolytes, waiting to receive their own gifts, would follow and remain seated before the great pillar of the divine until they either received the gift of the old prophets or they would leave, retaining their vow of silence until the next year, hoping to receive their gift at the next festival. As was custom, the prophets with the more coveted gifts, such as foresight or healing, who had gained high levels of prestige and a following of devotees, returned to the temple to lay tribute at the altar of the divine, a token of gratitude for the gifts and success they had received. The first prophet in the procession was Vaya, a prophetess who had last year received the gift of the prophet of burning coals, a highly coveted gift who enabled the bearer to speak in any language. It was a rare gift to be sure, and the bearer of such a gift was highly sought after, as it was believed that when they spoke, they spoke with the tongue of the divine. Mira, one of the more long-standing devotees still awaiting her gift, knew Vaya as an acolyte. When the future prophet was usually the subject of jokes of the uh, <clears throat> less enlightened acolytes or pilgrims, and teased for her clumsy manner and poor posture, as acolytes, Mira and Vaya found the kind of kinship one does with other outcasts, Mira for being such a long-standing acolyte with no gift, and Vaya for her appearance. But when she was given this highly prestigious gift, she had become seemingly transformed. Her posture straightened, and instead of the meek, giftless girl, her face became swollen with an air of superiority. Vaya led her entourage of adherents up the wide stone path, circling the tapered cone of the temple like threads of a screw, until they reached the peak where she presented her gift. 
a rare and jewel-encrusted book written in a long-forgotten dialect. Next was the prophet Greya, a notable bearer of the gift of the prophet of mist. While not the most common or most well-known, those that knew of it coveted it greatly, as they were the guardians of mysteries and revelation to study the ways of the spirit at the temples in the solitude. Their entourage was small, but recipients of this gift were rarely seen. Equally rare was the gift Greya brought, an ice diamond from the nigh-inaccessible peaks of mystery in the high mountains of Babal. Next was the prophet Ismia, a bearer of the gift of the prophet of joy, who, wherever she went, left people with lifted hearts and spirits. Next, the prophet Drona, a bearer of the gift of the prophet of stone. He had gone on to become a renowned alchemist, aiding in the construction of large cities. As the last of the prophets and their entourage made their way up the spiral road, and reached the platform at the top, the drummers reached a crescendo in a flurry of hammering until, all in unison, they ceased. Drona, the guest of honor, lit the torch at the top of the pillar at the center of the platform. Mira and the other acolytes, who had been preparing the whole of the year before for this moment, sat in silence before the fire. For a long time, nothing happened. The acolytes, waiting for their blessing, began to shift their weight uncomfortably. The wind, whistling in the far distance, and the faint voices of the undying song from the temple below were the only sounds to be heard until one of Isthmia's entourage tried to suppress a sneeze. Then, one by one, Mira's cohorts began to receive their gifts. One received the gift of flour whose bearer was blessed with the ability to make food for anyone in need. Another received the gift of time, whose bearer was able to see brief glimpses into the future. One by one, her cohorts received their gifts until dusk began to set, and she and one other were remaining. Just before the sun touched the horizon, Mira's remaining cohort received her gift. The gift of sound, a much-coveted gift whose bearer was able to heal any ailment with music. When the sun had set and the fires extinguished, marking the ceremony complete, Mira waited until the prophets and monks made a relieved exit from the platform and their respective devotees began to thin. A few, casting awkward, pitying glances in her direction. She waited until the last participant had gone so she could leave unobserved and return to her duties. After a few hours of sweeping, she rested in the great vaulted room that hosted the singers of the Undying Song, the lifeblood of the temple vital to its life and work, the song that greeted the sun in the morning and accompanied clouds as they carried music and rain across the valley, until the song changed into the night's lullaby. Singers were placed in shifts so that the song would never end. Her rest was interrupted suddenly when she noticed a woman staring in an odd, tender manner at her from the corner of the sanctuary, not far from its entrance. The woman stood motionless looking in her direction, 
Mira wiped her disappointed tears to look more presentable. Her presence typically went unnoticed by those who visited the temple. Amidst the undying song and the bustling of the whole affair, her voice and body most usually went unseen. The woman who had been staring at Mira shook her head for a moment, as if she had been shaken from a daze, and sat down on a stone bench near the entrance. As Mira sat down next to the woman, she reached for Mira's hand and held it tightly. She must have thought Mira a priestess, a fair assumption, since a priestess would likely not take the time to comfort someone in mourning. Mira smoothly brushed the woman's back with her hand, like her own mother had rubbed hers when she was in distress. Through poorly contained heaves and sobs, the woman spoke of how she had just given birth to a stillborn child. Her partner, unable to contain the grief, disappeared without a word. While the temple was remote, far up in the mountains and at the edge of a great gorge, the woman lived in a small town not far off, the only one nearby, really. However, as isolated as her community was, her grief had isolated her more than the winding roads and labyrinthian caverns could. Her friends and family offered only trite sayings that began to chafe the more she heard them, and the only solace she could find was in the temple. As the woman spoke, Mira dutifully kept her vow of silence. She had grown accustomed to sitting still and listening when so much needed to be said. This was a part of the training, of course. The reason for the vow of silence. The first impulse to speak is rarely the best. But as the woman continued, Mira was increasingly at odds with that first impulse, rising steadily from the pit of her stomach to her chest and then to her throat. She held it back for as long as she could, knowing that if she spoke, she might never receive the gift that seemed to evade her so much already. But the more she listened, the more trivial her desire to attain a gift became. And suddenly, she felt the words fly out of her mouth at lightning speed as it pressed for so long against her front teeth, straining at her tongue and palate this whole time. She could not hear herself as the words left her mouth, but heard clearly how the woman responded. Whatever Mira had said seemed to have worked though she herself did not know what they were. As the woman rose to leave, she touched Mira's head lovingly and repositioned her scarf over her saline-encrusted face and smiled as she exited the building's doors to the mist. When the woman left, Mira now had two burdens, her lack of gifts and her doom of now having broken her vow and, as was custom, the need to inform the high priestess at once. This was not a difficult task to do, most who took part in the festival of gifts, the celebration afterwards was a welcome relief to the strict ceremony of the festival. The high priestess, however, preferred to take a place in the Undying Song. Where many viewed the Undying Song as an obligation to maintain at least a few singers at all times, the high priestess found joy in every part of it, from the greeting of the sun to the soft lullabies at night. She loved the improvised notes that each singer brought to the song. Sure enough, Mira found her in the edges of the circle, in the vaulted chambers of the song at the base of the temple. Not wanting to speak again in the public, Mira tugged the arm of the high priestess, who, being fluent in nonverbal communication of the acolytes, knew her attention was needed and broke from the song. Taking Mira's hand, she pulled her gently down to sit down. Taking Mira's hand, she pulled her gently to sit down on a step with her, as she had recently done with the woman and noting Mira's silence, chose to speak aloud herself. 
She praised Mira, how the everlasting song changed when Mira sang in it. She spoke of how pilgrims were left rested and rejuvenated after hearing her song. She spoke of how the temple was brightened by her presence, how her service had not gone unnoticed. She praised Mira's faithfulness in the waiting and in the doing, that her loyalty to the monks, the priestesses, and the song had never wavered. And finally, Mira could endure it no longer. I've broken my vow, she blurted out. The priestess made no movement, not a slight twitch of the lips or bat of the eyes. Mira expected revulsion, or at least reprimand. If not that, then an explosion of anger from the revered leader. There was nothing. She simply gripped her hands and smiled. I'll renew my vows. I'll sing more in the chorus. I'll volunteer for more duties in the temple. She would have continued if the priestess had not stopped her. How many years have you stayed here, keeping your oath and dutifully serving? Would it not perhaps be better for you to see the other temples? Traverse the world. Comforting the suffering may be your calling. Gift or no gift. And if it was worth breaking your vow, and if it was worth breaking your vow, maybe you should do it more often. Go forth into the world. When you return, perhaps you will view you's... perhaps when you return, you will view your vows differently. Mira truthfully did not know if she felt relief or sadness, or if the priestess was encouraging her or admonishing her. I will gladly accept this pilgrimage as my penance, she said dutifully. Do not consider it penance, child. Consider it another meditation to prepare you for the gifts, the priestess replied. The next day, Mira set off on her journey. The brisk canyon breeze bid her farewell as she crossed the bridge from the temple, an island in the vast, mist-covered canyon, into the cave that led through the heart of the mountains. The cave began as a wide, vaulted opening that sheltered many vendors selling trinkets and souvenirs to visitors on their way in and out of the temple. Then, as the path closed, it became twisting and winding. Some said the tunnel was a spiritual place where holy revelation awaited those who were brave enough to traverse it without torches, and on faith alone, and viewed the vendors in the cave opening with disdain. Proliferators of this belief swore they knew someone blessed with revelation or that they themselves had received it in reward for their bravery. Listeners were sometimes dubious, sometimes envious, all equal parts curious. Some dismissed it as chatter meant to intimidate first-time travelers or trick them into doing something stupid. Mira had little time for stories today. Her vow of silence and devotion to the temple throughout the years had borne her nothing. Today, she was free of any such obligation. She lit a torch and traversed the tunnel with ease and emerged on the other side to begin her journey. First, she passed through the falls of the Prophet of Raging Waters, where a great waterfall had left a cave behind it, and light trickled in from the openings in the ceiling above the cave. There she stayed at the temple, behind the great waterfall, tending the sick, joining in the petitions of the just, and continued her journey. As she left the temple, she saw a drawing on the wall of a figure kneeling, praying. Over it was the title, The Blessed Prophet. As she traveled in no particular direction, she came upon the town of Grescent, where the prophet Ismia, bearer of the gift of the prophet of joy, had founded a festival in the town that, at the time, was beset by sorrow. She wept with them, shared their suffering, 
And now, in memory of this, a festival was celebrated every year in her honor. The Festival of Nine Trees. But when Mira arrived, she was not greeted by the joyous people she had heard of. Instead, she saw people ragged, rushing to construct altars and stages, banquet tables, and wine barrels for the celebration. Tourists, pilgrims, and magistrates from all across the province came to see the wonders of the festival initiated by the famous bearer of the prophet of the gift of joy. Mira had arrived a full month before the festival, and everywhere she looked, she was greeted with austerity among the people in the midst of the lavish preparations. She saw mothers and fathers sharing a bowl of grains with their children, those same children who she would grow accustomed to hearing wail and hunger as they stockpiled the food for the festival. She was once anxious to see and celebrate the festival in honor of her fellow student, and looked forward to feasting and drinking. But she was stung by what she saw, and her appetite quickly dissipated. Any food she would eat, she knew she would be taking from the mouths of the children. So on she traveled. As she traveled, she came across town after town, where she heard of the blessed prophet. One so humble, his presence was undetectable, until he left and the only signs of his presence were the grace and mercy in the people he had served. A swell of envy hit Mira each time she heard another blessed prophet tale. She tried her best to swallow. In the nearby city of Hildas, she saw austerity yet again. The city folk were restraining themselves from food and revelry, saying, We must prepare ourselves for the great bounty of food that will be at the Festival of Nine Trees. Sickened at how one town would starve themselves out of obligation, while the other one would feast from it, she began to solicit supplies, funds, and food for the town of Gressend, aiming not to burden any more individuals with the preparations for the festival. Some derided her, saying she was only taking food for herself. They scoffed at the thought of someone soliciting for a town that was so obviously well off they were able to host a grand festival every year. Rumors spread that she actually lived in a grand house in another town with a fine horse of impeccable breeding, and that she made her living off begging in the streets. But Mira paid no mind and continued with her work. After securing food and supplies from Hildas, she continued to do the same in other cities she knew were attending the festival. And some who had helped her in one city traveled with her to the next, and to the next, until she needed carts to haul food and supplies. That year, the festival was the most joyous it had been since the first Festival of Trees, with leaders from each neighboring city encouraging their own citizens to bring what they could, and encourage their citizens to bring food in the years to come, and work together and share the load as well as the joy. At the end of the festival, a small child approached Mira and handed her a rag doll as a token of thanks. Mira was thanked by other organizers and terms folk alike as she prepared once again to leave. And as she left, she heard again whispers of the Blessed Prophet, and covered her ears as the stories of the Prophet's exploits began. She traveled on, visiting temple after temple, wonder after wonder. At the great bridge of Drona, a fantastical structure bridging a chasm so wide you could barely see the other side, she saw pilgrims on their way to another temple. The bridge was built of a hard and sharp structure, it was a new substance, made by the alchemy of the prophet. A substance made to withstand enemies and elements. Pilgrims, not all of whom had shoes, found the journey across the bridge hard and painful, and 
Often, their feet began to bleed. Mira stopped to help, bandaging their feet and carrying them across when she could. The pilgrims were grateful and offered her payment, but instead she requested that they do the same when they return. Soon, aid stations appeared on the bridge, all along the way, and Mira was needed no more. So on she traveled, hearing again the stories of the Blessed Prophet that made her ears burn and her blood boil. She wandered through the valley of the forests, a great rift in the earth with snow-covered mountains on each side, and ancient trees making a forest reaching hundreds of meters into the sky. In the center was the Cathedral of Redwoods, where the trees had been bent, grafted, and tended to form a great ceiling of a sanctuary. There she performed the meditation on the gifts, a discipline so lengthy that few had been able to do it. When she had finished, there was no revelry, no celebration, no crowds of priests or devotees wanting to form her entourage. There was only silence. She traveled on, Her travels had taken her across caverns, oceans, lakes, and lands, and after years, she returned to the Temple of Gifts. Preparing to cross the bridge to return to her own temple, she was greeted with the same vendors selling trinkets, only now most of them were of the Blessed Prophet. Mira set down her pack near one of the vendors to rest, and a familiar face approached her. It was the woman she had broken her vow of silence to comfort in the sanctuary all those years ago. Mira was overjoyed to see her and asked what had changed since they had lost or saw one another. The woman exclaimed joyfully that her life was near unrecognizable. She pointed to the small crowd behind her. The woman smiled and told Mira that the comforting words she gave her that day moved her to adopt as many of the orphan children living on the streets of a nearby town as she could. Soon after, she heard of others who needed shelter and took them in as well. Now she had more children than she could ever have imagined, and she had built her own family and community, and it was all thanks to the Blessed Prophet. At this, Mira huffed and blurted out in frustration. Everywhere I go, I hear these stories of the Blessed Prophet. Can no one talk of anything else? The woman with many children received this with confusion and stayed silent for a moment, looking pensively at Mira and asked, Don't you know who the Blessed Prophet is? Of course I don't. Does anyone? I've only heard of him. I've never seen him, replied Mira. You are the Blessed Prophet, the woman said. All the stories you've heard are of you. You have been given the most important gift of all. The gift of the prophet of mud. The gift of wisdom, understanding, and care. Mud can build homes and shelter, heal us of our wounds, and humbles even the greatest of chariots. Of course, it isn't the most attractive or the most comfortable, but it is the most powerful. The next year at the Festival of Gifts, Mira, bearer of the gift of the Prophet of Mud, the Blessed Prophet herself, was the last in the processional, the guest of honor. Her cloak was made of quilted rags. She wore no shoes. Her gift? A rag doll given to her by a child at the Festival of Joy. For this, 
is her most prized possession. How about it, folks? I told you there would be religious imagery. Of prophets and warlords will be different from anything you've ever heard in a fantasy show. There will be enigmatic evil, boisterous bravery, terrific twists, and lands that vanish before your very eyes. There will be more of that in season two, but folks, let me tell you, we are just about to head into our season one serial arc that will be Vasquez and Walker, our Indiana Jones and Indiana Jane. They'll be showing up after two more episodes, so keep your hats on and don't go nowhere. Speaking of not going anywhere, on with our next story. Let the Wonder Man unfold. The Relic Cotillion Our story begins in a small town in the mountains of upstate New York. John Quincy Adams may have just been elected in the 1824 elections, but that hardly mattered to the folks up here. They mostly kept on in their ways. Little Samuel Reed was always told never to look outside after bedtime. He was told about all manner of monsters that, if he managed to see, would make him go blind. His mother and father would tell him frightening stories of terrible creatures and what happened to the unfortunate souls that encountered them. Undoubtedly, this was to frighten him, but the more he heard the stories, the more he was fascinated by them much to the chagrin of his parents. One night, his parents sent him to bed early. He wasn't really sure why. It was darker earlier, but other than that, there was no reason. He hadn't done anything. His parents were in a lively mood. It was just an early night. Little Samuel could not sleep, though. He kept hearing noises. Mostly shuffling outside, he could hear his parents whispering in muted tones, but he could not make out what they said. After a while, he drifted off, but he was awoken by a door closing, or what he thought was a door closing. He was still a bit sleepy. He knew he was not supposed to look outside, but can you say you wouldn't do the same? Have you ever tried not to think about something, only to think of that same thing? The noises outside continued. There were more of them, and louder now. He could hear what he thought was hushed and whispered voices. He opened the bedroom door as quietly as he could to look for his parents. They were nowhere in the common areas. He knocked on the door to their bedroom. Nothing stirred on the other side. Perhaps they were also asleep. The noises and voices outside grew in volume. It seemed that whatever was outside had grown in number as well. A light danced on the ceiling after coming in from the window. First it was one, then another, more faint but dancing the same jig, and joined in the other light on the ceiling. He could now hear the voices with some amount of clarity, and understand a word here and there, but nothing that made sense. They sounded like people, whatever they were. He tried to look out of the keyhole of the front door. He kept hearing the noises, but through the keyhole he only saw large shapes moving around. He moved one of the wooden chairs seated at the table over to the window, making tracks in the dirt on the floorboards. He climbed up on the chair to look outside, 
and what he saw he could not have imagined. There were no monsters, no craven creatures, no horrors that would make him go blind. It was just his neighbors. He recognized all the townspeople. There was the mayor with his mayor's sash at the center of the town square. He shifted almost constantly in his clothes as if the fit were uncomfortable, although they were not badly fit. There was the shopkeeper that would always give little Samuel a piece of licorice. He was waiting at the flagpole, talking with the fellow townsfolk as they passed by. His hands constantly scratched at his wrist in a nervous tick. And then he saw his parents. They didn't seem bothered or anxious. Rather, they were greeting their fellow townsfolk as if they had just left a church service. The mayor set himself up at the center of the square and the congregation, wherever they were, turned their attention to him. Let the dance macabre begin, the mayor exclaimed. All of the adults then took off their skin as if it were a coat, revealing nothing but skeletons. The shopkeeper tossed his skin coat in the air. The mayor draped his over the bulletin board at the center of the town square. Little Samuel's parents dropped theirs where they stood and joined their neighbors in the dancing. One of the skeleton had taken the limbs of another skeleton and was banging their own ribs like some sort of marimba took her own arm, riddled with holes, and still seated, put the bone up to her mouth. An atonal and rapid melody burst forth to the rhythm made by the drummers and the marimba. He recognized the shopkeeper. No one else was that tall or lanky. Now, without his skin, there was no nervous scratching of his wrists. He was standing on the bench in the square behind a group of dancing skeletons, holding someone's bone in each hand and banging on their heads like drums. A line of skeletons had linked arms side by side and danced a bizarre routine that Samuel had never seen before, each one mimicking each other. Another group had linked arms and danced in a circle at the center of the square, contorting themselves in every manner of entanglements. Two skeletons took one another apart and began juggling with his bones as he recited a poem in gibberish. Every skeleton townsperson was engaged in some kind of revelry. If they weren't making chilling bone music, they were dancing in the most outrageous fashion or singing some song in a dialect of madness. The ensemble of dancers began a parade, accompanied by the skeleton music. It made its way aimlessly around the square, through the open church, like a drunk cat stumbling side to side. The parade continued in this fashion until it made its way out of the square and into the forest on the edge of town the music fading as they went, leaving the town in a haunted silence. The next morning, little Samuel's family greeted him with smiles as he emerged from the bedroom. Just another lovely day. How about it, folks? That was another neat little entry from Tales and Mystery and Macabre. That's it for this week. We'd like to thank our guest editor, Meg Sakura. You can find her writings on pottery on strangeandforeign.ca or in the show notes. Also, don't forget to check out our good friend of the show, Collective Action Comics Podcast. If the sound is any good at all at this ramshackle outfit, it's thanks to them. See you on the next episode for some weird tales indeed.